normally when I tell you a story, someone else's story, I like to kind of get up here and act it out in my own, you know, inimitable way. But the story I want to share with you today is one that I thought was so perfectly executed that I'm going to read it to you. When he was very young, he waved his arms, gnashed the teeth of his massive jaws, and tromped around the house so that the dishes trembled in the china cabinet. Oh, for goodness sake, his mother said, you are not a dinosaur. You are a human being. Since he was not a dinosaur, he thought for a time that he might be a pirate. Seriously, his father said at some point, what do you want to be? A fireman then, or a policeman, or a soldier, some kind of hero. But in high school, they gave him tests and told him he was very good with numbers. Perhaps he would like to be a math teacher. That was respectable. Or a tax accountant. He could make a lot of money doing that. It seemed a good idea to make money, what with falling in love and thinking about raising a family. So he was a tax accountant, even though he sometimes regretted that it made him well small. And he felt even smaller when he was no longer a tax accountant, but a retired tax accountant. Still worse, a retired tax accountant who forgot things. He forgot to take the garbage to the curb, forgot to take his pill, forgot to turn his hearing aid back on. Every day, it seemed he had forgotten more things, important things, like which of his children lived in San Francisco and which of his children were married or divorced. And then one day, when he was out for a walk by the lake, he forgot what his mother had told him. He forgot that he was not a dinosaur. And so he stood blinking his dinosaur eyes in the bright sunlight, feeling the warmth on his dinosaur skin and watching dragonflies flitting around the horsetails at the water's edge. I first heard this story when I was in the midst of an eight-day Vipassana, insight meditation retreat with the wonderful teacher Tara Brock. And she told us this story, this dinosaur story, at the end of, I think, the fourth day. A Vipassana retreat is where you are doing little else than sitting for 12 to 14 hours a day. A little bit of yoga, a little bit of walking meditation. But a time in which you are really getting in touch with whatever is. And so she shared this story in a talk at the end of the day about an encouragement. What you think your life is, what you call your life, what you call your identity is probably not nearly as solid as what it really is. Beyond dinosaur, beyond accountant, and by the way, nothing against accountants, beyond I am a minister, beyond all the different ways that you might be able to articulate your identity and our identity, Tara was saying this. Beyond all of this, there is a life that is bigger than the life that you choose to associate with. Beyond all of those I am phrases, simply, I am alive. She was encouraging us to remember we are all works in progress, and that this is in many ways the deepest and biggest blessing of life, that life is bigger and more roomy and more open than we could ever imagine it to be. And yet many of us lock ourselves down into a small identity, when in fact we might learn to open ourselves up. 
And the goal is not to be a fierce dinosaur, though if you want to be a fierce dinosaur, be a fierce dinosaur, recapture that. And the goal is not to say that being an accountant or anything else is soulless. The goal is to remember that within any real identity, there is always space, the unformed space of that which is not yet, and that which, if we are always growing and living, can never be fully expressed. And in this space, we might become more fully human, bigger than a label, more magical, more playful, and more free. This is why I chose this story for today's Stories with Soul. Now, this whole series is about kids' literature. This isn't kids' literature. This is literature about a kid, and actually it's a webcomic about a kid. And it's from Allie Brosh, who's the author of what's called Hyperbole and a Half. And this one is simply called Menace. One of the reasons I love Allie Brosh and Hyperbole and a Half is that she has a tremendous capacity for joy, for mirth, for insight. And she's also very open about the fact that she lives with sometimes debilitating depression. She tells a lot of stories about her childhood. And this is one in which Halloween comes around one year and she discovers the dinosaur suit. The dinosaur suit which sets free from within her the wild animal. Now because it's Halloween and she, as you see in the first bar up there, goes absolutely nuts. She rampages through the Halloween party. The teacher associates it with the fact that she has consumed a whole bag of sugar. And so her parents, when she gets home and she takes off the dinosaur suit for a while and then puts it back on and then starts craning over all the walls, they said, ah, sugar must be the culprit. They, they do sugar in her life, but it's not. It's the suit. It's the dinosaur suit. She dreams about the dinosaur suit. She hears it calling her name from the closet. And she puts on that dinosaur suit and she creates absolute havoc and menace. You sit here and think about what you've done. That's not a guilty face at all, is it? <laughs> Maybe some of you have seen that face today. <laughs> I love this story because it's about playfulness and imagination. And about the fact that none of our lives are finished It is about, I think, as Walt Whitman would have put it, about sounding your barbaric yop. Any of you remember that? Sounding your barbaric yop. Any of you saw, what's it called, uh, Dead Poets Society? Do we have any barbaric yops here today? Can I get a barbaric yop? Better than 930. (laughs) A little more alive, a little more awake. How about any dinosaur roars? It makes no sense to do this, right? And that's the point. If everything we do makes sense, we will be playing a small life. We will be doing exactly what we expect of ourselves and exactly what other people expect of us, and we won't be connected to what real growth is, to the un formed, unforming, reforming edge of our lives. For this, it connects me back to when I was uh, my late 20s, maybe 25, 26, 27, and I had my first meditation teacher. Now, at this point in my life, I thought meditation was to, you know, give me instant karma, instant grace, instant peace, serenity. Now, uh, meditation was to give me the new mind that I didn't have. Meditation was to get me somewhere else, which is to say I didn't know anything about meditation whatsoever. And the meditation teacher gave us this one basic kind of koan, riddle, with meditation. 
that we could breathe in the words asking ourselves, what am I? Breathe out the words, don't know. Breathe in, what am I? Breathe out, don't know. What she was trying to encourage us is to recognize that our lives are not finished. What she was trying to encourage us is to recognize how often we, and by we I mean me here, we build reality based on a small self-image rather than reality being built on reality that is always growing and changing, on life that is larger than life, that we are growing sometimes or not growing according to the image of what we think we are, rather than growing according to our dinosaur hearts. Or even more, living life by the heart. And living life our heart size. This is incredibly important as we work through this life to recognize how unfinished and how not finalized our lives are. And particularly it is important when life breaks us. Or when life breaks. When life gets difficult. This past week in our Engaged Compassion group, we told the story of a man named Azim Kamisa. And some of you have heard this story already. Azim suffered what could be the worst thing that can happen to you as a person, to anyone. The death of a child. And not the death of a child that they anticipated would come about. It wasn't disease they didn't see on the horizon. His 21-year-old son was taken from him in an act of violence. Murdered by a 14-year-old in a gang initiation ritual. Who would have blamed Azim if he would have thought, that's it. I'm done. Life has nothing more to show me. Life has nothing more to offer me. What years I have left, I am going to live in despair and in bitterness. The identity of what I was isn't what I am now. And life is done. But that's not what he did. A devout Muslim, Azim made a decision to make a decision for life. He would, after months of discernment and struggle and working with the rocky ground of his own heart, made a decision that he would forgive his son's murderer. The truth that he found about his son's murderer is that he was a 14-year-old boy growing up in absolutely atrocious conditions who, of course, was responsible for what he did. But when he met, went to the jail, to the prison, to meet that 14-year-old boy, what he saw was a scared child who was aware he had done something atrociously wrong, and the two of them embraced in tears each in their own brokenness. Azim and his son's murderer have worked together now for years as anti-violence activists, speaking to the hole in the heart that opens when violence invades a life. Azim shows us that growth means holding our identity lightly enough so that when it's time to let go and enter into new life, we can enter with grace and openness, sometimes even in the midst of such profound and unimaginable pain. Growth in new life is not about not being sad. 
It's about allowing ourselves to be sad in such a way so that we might recognize the tears that we shed water the soil of new life of what is coming to be in our midst even if what we have is not what we want. The flip side of this is it's not just about grief and not just about the sad stuff. It's also about gratitude and it's also about joy. Which brings me to this image. February 1st, 1986. When I saw The Replacement, the band The Replacements in concert, led by Paul Westerberg. Now I'm going to get to where I was last night in just a moment, but I want to tell you a little bit earlier on this day, on February 1st, 1986, I went with my cool friend Chris, who lived in Manhattan. We just moved back to Manhattan. I felt like I'd been, uh, you know, uh, freed from the exile when my family moved back to New York City when I was 15. And I hung out with my cool friend Chris a lot, and he took me to Astor Place Haircuts, where he got his cool, so cool, punk haircut. And I wanted to get the same haircut, but it didn't work out that way. When I got back to boarding school, where I was in school, at the Hill School, actually, uh, my less cool, less charitable, less kind, but still truthful friend, other friend Chris, said, you look like an egg with hair on it. (laughs) And he was absolutely right. So that night, me, 15-year-old me, egg with hair on it, went to see the replacements. And for the first time, me who had always been like, you know, musically looking back to the 60s. Oh, if only we were alive, you know, when Dylan was recording Blonde on Blonde or the Stones or the Who or the Beatles, blah, 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 blah. You know, I thought it was all past. But the replacements for the first time, 15-year-old me, vulnerable, scared, not sure of who I was at all, heard my story, my life being told by the lyrics and the music of Paul Westerberg and the replacements. This is who they are. Well, this is who they were. And this is who they are. Because last night, as some of you might know, I saw their reunion show, and it was awesome. But even before that, I want to tell you that three years after February 1st, 1986, I got a whole bunch of my fellow uh, first-year college students, my friends, to go see the replacements in concert. But the only issue was is that three years after that high point, that concert that changed my life, the replacements were on their last legs, their last breath. They were a shell of the band they had been. And we went to the concert that I hyped up all my friends about and I was so excited for, and they sucked. (laughs) They were terrible. They were no good anymore. And I was like, I was embarrassed. I was annoyed. But here's the thing. Many years later, I've let the concert in 1989 go because of what they gave me in 1986. A vision and a voice into my own heart, my own scared, yes, budding alcoholic, vulnerable, but not knowing how to express vulnerability, authenticity, meaningfully. That's what the replacement songs were all about. And so on that night, February 1st, 1986, I belonged. If Paul Westerberg never did anything, or the replacements never did anything for me other than February 1st, 1986, now what I can say, it was enough. The gift was enough. To borrow the phrase from the Hebrew, from the Passover Seder, Dainu. It would have been sufficient. It would have been enough. Holding our despair, holding our joy, holding our identity lightly means we can leave space and become unstuck, unfixated. It means that we can recognize at times, not just with our grief, but also with our joy from the past, 
that sometimes the most painful demons we know are the angels that we couldn't let go. Oh, remember when that was so good. Remember how much they loved me. Remember how much I loved them. Sometimes the most painful demons we know are the angels that we couldn't let go. It doesn't mean that it wasn't wonderful. It just means it's not right here right now anymore. And so maybe we might let the angels of yesterday fly away, trusting and open and vulnerable enough to believe that others in many forms will arrive different than before, but still as valuable. This is related to something I've learned about parenting over the years and something I've talked with some of you about. There have been studies that have shown this, that praising your child can be very productive or very counterproductive. Praising your child, let's say they're good in school, they do really well, they achieve a lot. Praising your child for how smart they are, a fixed identity, is actually likely to be very counterproductive. Praising a child for their effort, for how hard they tried, even when they fail, is much more productive because the issue with praising a child for how smart they are, maybe that set image, well, I'm smart. Well, if I fail or I flunk, <laughs> what do I have left? And this was done with me a lot when I was a kid. I used to love, the, I, I used to gobble these words up with as many spoons as I could when I was called an old soul. I was not an old soul at 15. I wanted to be. I was confused. I was scared. But, oh, the adults around me thought I was so mature. <laughs> what an image I hid behind. Because in the end, what it did was just make me want to protect that image and hide and not be able to talk about the times when I had no idea what I was doing. Having an identity to protect inhibits our growth. It's another reason that today I'm not preaching on, you know, the five hallmarks of the best mothers in the world. One, you know, I'm not qualified to. I'm not a mom. But, but it's more than that. It's that when I look out at all of you, this day, Mother's Day, might be one of joy and bliss and wonder. And it also may be one of frustration, loss, and pain. Or maybe all the above. I have no idea how Mother's Day lands with you. And it's exactly what Mick talked about at the start of the service. We've got this hallmark, idealized vision of the way Mother's Day ought to be, the way this day ought to be. But that image leaves no room for the life that is larger than life. So often we can fall into the trap of believing the story that we tell about ourselves or the story other people tell about us rather than opening up the space for what is actually happening to us that doesn't fit into any pre-written story. In this we confuse a role in life with the soul that is still forming within us. Life comes to us in an infinite succession of forms. None of them are fixed or final, just as we are never fixed or final. And we hear, or we can hear, the potential for new life leading us in new ways, even in endings, even in difficulty, if we hold open that space of admitting to ourselves, what am I? Don't know. This is like what we talk about with our core beliefs, the chrysalis which, by the way, in our lives is not once and done, but it's that image, the butterfly heading into the chrysalis, that uncertain place, that betwixt and between place of not knowing where we are, of perhaps allowing ourselves to be guided by just what we heard in the song, this limitless, undying love that shines around us like a million sun. It calls us on and on across the universe. That is the life that is larger than the life 
we tell ourselves that we have. And so I want to end here this morning on this Mother's Day with not a story from my own mother, but it's one of my favorite stories of mothers. And you will find this story on absolutely no Hallmark card at all. It's a story that comes to me from my first ministry, from a woman who I did some counseling with at that time. This person had a mother who, if we were being less than charitable, might describe her as the mother from hell. A mother who was difficult, was unreliable, was not there for this person when they were a child. It was a painful growing up. It was nothing ideal at all. So much so that when this person in my first ministry had an opportunity to get away from home and to get away from mom, she did. She booked out to find the freedom that she could. And she was really good at holding space and keeping space for many, many years. Until her mother reached out to her with the news that she had developed what we would now call Alzheimer's disease. Her mother was losing her mind and eventually it would cost her her life. And so the woman in my first ministry went back to care for her mother. At first, only out of obligation. Also worrying, perhaps, and this was true, that her mother had alienated everyone else in her life that no one else was left. And she didn't want her mother to go through this alone. And I've seen it. Losing your mind is terrifying. Alzheimer's is terrifying. There's nothing ideal in this story. Her mother was difficult before. It was even more difficult now with the fights and the not knowing what was happening and the anger and the tears and the recognition every time she was told again what was happening to her, how crushing it was. It was not easy, but this woman from my first ministry stuck with her. Stuck with her mom. And then something shifted. Something shifted. That's what it often does with Alzheimer's. Almost when the mind is totally gone. And there were no more fights or tears or anger or the rehashing of old wounds. At this point in her life, this woman from my first ministry experienced a grace that she never thought she would experience. She would crawl into the bed next to the woman whose identity used to be of her mother. And this woman not even recognizing her daughter anymore. And she would lay in bed next to her and wrap herself around this frail body. And just love her. She would brush her thinning hair. And her mother would say, thank you. She could say to her mother at that point what she never was allowed to say before. I love you, Mommy. I love you. And her mother would look up at her, perhaps not even knowing who she was, and saying, I love you too. Not finding the dinosaur she thought she was, but perhaps the old woman, her mother. 
finding something of that childlike nature again, ready to trust again. And yes, we lose so much in this life. But maybe then another awareness rises up that was never ours to keep in the first place. And so instead we turn to loving the gift because this is all we can do. And may we remember those words from the poet Philip Larkin that in the end, at our end, what will remain of us is love. For all the changes in your life, may you leave open space. And may that greater love hold your life. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O divine life forming but never fully formed, may we take on the shape of life. Not solid, but more like water that flows. May we this day allow ourselves to open space, allow ourselves to get away from playing it small with this identity. I am fill in the blank, period. Maybe we can just say, I am fill in the blank, dot, dot, dot. Don't know. We'll see. And when we see then, we'll see again then. May we allow this life to touch us, hold us, love us up into the always eternal, ongoing becoming. And in this way, know that we are living life at its deepest, fullest, most blessed, and most beloved. Amen.